0: Welcome to Keeping It Civil, a podcast co-sponsored by the School of Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership at Arizona State University and Arizona PBS. I'm Henry Thompson, a professor in the School of Politics and Global Studies at Arizona State University. This is an interview show in which I talk to scholars, writers, intellectuals, and thought leaders about civil discourse, the American political tradition, and intellectual life more broadly. I hope you enjoy the conversation. On this episode, I talk to Shep Melnick, who's a professor of American politics at Boston College and the co-chair of the Harvard Program on Constitutional Government. We talk about the current crisis in American higher education, particularly in the humanities. We also talk about his research on Title IX, the regulation of gender equality in American higher education, and controversies around that topic from the Trump administration through the Biden administration. We also talk about Shep's new book, The Crucible of School Desegregation, which is coming out in 2023, and I encourage listeners to take a look, and I hope you enjoy the conversation. Shep Malnick, thank you very much for joining us on Keeping It Civil. It's great to have you on the podcast. You were recently out here at ASU for the annual conference of the School for Civic and Economic Thought and Leadership, which I hope was an enjoyable visit.
1: It sure was. It was very
0: informative. You know, a lot of the conference was devoted to the theme of intellectual diversity in higher education. But more broadly, I think that we are living through something of a moment of deep sort of deliberation of higher education in general. And I I just wanted to get your thoughts on whether you think that in 2023, American higher education is in a state of crisis.
1: It seems like higher education is always in a state of crisis, Uh, but I do think that things are at a turning point right now, and that's because there are a variety of forces that are requiring universities to think more distinctly about their purposes. Most importantly, the debate about critical race theory and microaggressions and the clear left-leaning of the faculty. Even more so, the the left-leaning of administrators, which I think is, in some ways, the most serious problem, which is, I think, in teaching students to be extremely cautious about what they say. Um, And the long-term consequence, I think, is that students are afraid to talk honestly about major issues. So that's one problem. There is the, the rising cost of education. There is the fact that many people with college degrees are not being trained to do things in the economy. Um, and what ASU has done, really focused on is the fact that civic education is so lacking at all levels of education. I sometimes am shocked to find out how little my students know about the most basic features of American politics. And I'll just say one thing, that we have so much training these days about racial matters. But if you ask students, what do they know about the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the Equal Protection Clause, what do we know about the things that we've done to try to address these problems? They know nothing, and it's not their fault because they have never been taught that. I find that in my classes right now, that there's this disproportion between the claim that we want to get people to think about race and the fact we don't teach them about the things that the, the government does to try to address these problems.
0: I think this is an interesting kind of uh, constellation of factors, and I'd be interested in maybe breaking that down a little because there is a real sort of political economy problem in the higher education sector, it seems to me. Enrollments are declining across the board, but, well, across the board in the United States on the whole, but especially in on the East Coast and smaller liberal arts colleges, my understanding is that they are really struggling to maintain enrollments, and some are actually closing. At the same time, as you say, the cost of higher education is increasing so there are these sort of political economy questions that seem to affect the humanities more perhaps intensively than other parts of the university but then there's this separate set of issues around the politics of the university what students are being taught how do you think those two sets of factors go together is is one a reaction to the other in a way or 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 is one making the other worse or, or what's going on
1: well, as with all any major question, there are so many different uh, factors that contribute. Number one, there is a demographic factor that the number of college-age students has been declining. There's the other factor that's the costs have been escalating so rapidly. You know, we can talk about the causes of that. And then that leads parents and students to think, you know, what am I getting that's worthwhile? I'm a big fan of the humanities. I think that uh, well-educated people should be familiar with the great novels, the great plays, the great music, the great art. But uh, more people are thinking, you know, is that necessary? Can I get a job with that? Coupled with the fact that, I mean, it's hard to tell whether the humanities are being murdered or whether they're committing suicide. If The reason that most people want to study great literature is to learn about the human experience. And if they're being taught that it's just all about race, gender, class, and it's all meaningless, then why would anyone take one of those courses? If English departments or Romance Language departments are going to attract students to take courses beyond that, they have to show them they have something worth teaching. And I think very frequently they don't.
0: Yeah, there are some absolutely shocking numbers out there. There was a recent piece you might have probably read it, and I think it was in the New Yorker or in New York Magazine about the crisis of the humanities. And I think the title was even something like "The End of the English Major," and something like fifty percent declines in the number of English majors across most universities. Some universities have experienced up to sixty or seventy percent declines over the last uh, over the last decade. I recently read a statistic that there were a grand total of three tenure-track jobs in European history advertised in North America in 2021. Where do you see signs for renewal or hope for renewal in the humanities?
1: You know, that, that's an interesting question. I'm not sure I really qualified to answer. But I will say, I'll, I'll talk from something I do know about, which is political science departments. Most political science departments are doing quite well. Ours is, we have many more students than we can handle. And you say, you know, what are some of the features of political science departments that might make them different from English departments? Number one, we're much more diverse. And I would say that one of the interesting features in political science in recent decades is that I think we are taking on some of the the responsibilities that have been shed by humanities departments. So, for example, within political science, there's this really booming field called American political development which basically is a study of American history. And why is that gravitated to the political science departments is because most history departments have stopped teaching political history. They've stopped teaching diplomatic history. So
0: the people who are interested in those fields have gone into political science. And a large part of your research has been on the regulation of gender equality in education and higher education, particularly. And I was interested in getting your thoughts on how that issue has potentially contributed to or maybe helped to mitigate some of the problems of higher education. How do you see this issue of Title IX, the, these federal regulations around gender and higher education, how do you see that fitting into this broader picture of of higher education's perhaps perennial crisis as you kind of portray it. Sure. Well, let me start off with the positive, which Mm -hmm. is that since
1: Title IX was passed in 1972, the number of women in colleges, the number of women in the profession, the number of people that we see in the job pool has increased dramatically. That has been enormous unleashing
0: of talent. Is it fair to say that you... In your book, your 2018 book, The Transformation of Title Nine. is it fair to say that you think that there's been a sort of a tipping point reached with this federal regulation that it's instead of enhancing the higher education system that it's become something of a drag on the higher education system? I
1: don't think it is that we have gone too far in the original direction of Title IX, because the original direction was to to strip away these discriminatory barriers. And the argument I make in the book is that what happened was that we very subtly, starting in the 1990s and much more so in the first Obama administration, changed the very purpose of regulation under Title IX. So instead of eliminating institutional barriers to education by women, it went, it, the goal became trying to change the way all of us, whether it be students, faculty, staff, or the public at large, think about all matters sexual. So it went from behavior to thought, and it went from kind of removed barriers to change sexual stereotypes in people's heads. And you can see that in the emphasis on high-visibility varsity sports. Why high-visibility varsity sports rather than the things that most girls and women do? Because it's visible and you want to change role models. Sexual harassment. It was clearly a desire to change sexual norms. And that's most clear in the transgender issues where we want to deconstruct our very notions of what is male and female. So that's a much different agenda. I think it has very little to do with education. It might have more to do with what we might call re-education than real education. And I think it's been a tremendous both distraction and it has, I believe, it has the danger of really um, taking women's sense of agency away from them women are doing great in so many ways and they should be very we're in control of our lives but sometimes this rhetoric makes them seem like they're just the victims of constant uh, harassment and oppression by men
0: for those of us like me i'm not from the united states originally and i must admit that i'm not as familiar with the history and workings of title IX. What exactly is Title IX? What is the mechanism by which it works, and why does it have such broad effects on the behavior of universities? Sure. Let me I'll try to give you a little uh the basics on this.
1: Title IX was passed as a little noted amendment to the uh, Omnibus Education Amendments of 1972. Very little attention is paid to it at the time. It simply says that no institution that receives federal financial assistance, which means virtually every college in every K-12 through 12 system in the country, cannot discriminate on the basis of sex. Important to note, there are some exceptions. It does not apply to private liberal arts college admissions. So you can still have single-sex colleges, although we have almost no male, you can have female. It doesn't apply to um, housing because you can discriminate on the basis of of housing. You can have single-sex housing. You can have single-sex bathrooms. And most importantly, you can have single-sex sports. So the big controversy basically from the 1970s through the 1990s was athletics. Um, And most people think of Title IX above all as dealing with athletics because that's the the controversy. The controversy hit sports not because sports is such a big part of education— I think it's often anti-education, but because we accepted the position of separate but equal, something we would never accept in sports, but we accept in athletics because there are biological differences between men and women. You know, the, the, I just want to repeat that. There are biological differences between men and women, and that's why we have separate teams. That might, what if would have seemed utterly uncontroversial until recently, when we started thinking about transgender issues. The importance of Title IX expanded, especially during the Obama administrations, when they issued these very extensive regulations on sexual harassment. so uh, and, and very detailed on what constituted sexual harassment, how you need to adjudicate it, uh, what you need to address the problem. And of course, sexual harassment includes sexual misconduct, including sexual assault. And that's what really required schools to completely reorient how they handled these things. The regulations were very detailed. And then um, I would just add the one, the one third element, which was the Obama administration came out with regulations about treatment of transgender students, and that has been renewed by the Biden administration. So from the sports issue, it went to
0: harassment and then went to
1: transgender.
0: And what sort of power does the federal government have to enforce these regulations if they were just sort of an amendment to a bill back in the 70s? How exactly have these, because we're talking about an enormous higher education sector in the United States, very decentralized, private public, uh, all sorts of different um, parts of the country and state regulations. How is it that the federal government actually has a mechanism to enforce these sorts of um, quite detailed rules?
1: That's a crucial question. And let me just add, first talk about enforcement and then talk about regulations. So the enforcement mechanism of Title IX, like its predecessor, Title VI of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, is that the federal agency can take away federal funds, which are extensive and they are huge. And the number of times that the federal government has revoked federal funds to enforce Title
0: IX is exactly zero. What would be a sort of example of that? What would be a violation that would be punished by each of these different types of um, enforcement mechanisms? Sure. Let let me um, use two two particular cases. Um,
1: There was a very important case in the First Circuit brought by Brown University on athletics. And basically, the, the the court said, you have not provided equal teams for men and women, therefore you are ordered to expand
0: this team, that team, that team. Okay, so that there are equal numbers of scholarships and equal numbers of staff in men's and women's sports. Most important, number of
1: varsity slots.
0: What are varsity slots for?
1: So basically, how many how many varsity athletes how many varsity athletes do you have? Those
0: are people with full scholarships to play sports.
1: At some schools, yes. This case involved Brown Ivy League schools do not allow athletic scholarships. Uh, So basically, say you have to when you add up all the varsity players at Brown, do you have equal numbers of men and women? Um at other schools, um, you know, at like at ASU or Arizona State, um, basically said the rules say that you have to have no more than fifty-one percent of your scholarship money going to males. But so that's one example. The other example of of damages is the, there are two Supreme Court cases in which uh, were involved pretty severe case of sexual misconduct against elementary and secondary school kids and the school did not take adequate precautions about this so the parents of the children who were suffered this really quite grievous wrong sought monetary damages and got quite large settlements from the schools. So that's a big danger for schools. They have to watch out for those cases.
0: So it seems to me like the potential severity of reputational or financial or administrative sort of costs is what has led these regulations to have a sort of such sweeping effects across basically every university in the country. These have been controversial, these regulations. As you say, there was this expansion under Obama, but then I recall that under Trump, there was also huge amount of controversy about his proposed reforms to these regulations. Why? Why would those reforms so controversial?
1: Here's something, I very rarely say anything that was done by the Trump administration. Those are very good regulations. (laughs) Um, Ken Marcus, who was head of the Office of Civil Rights at the time, did an excellent job on these. They incorporated many of the ideas in the original guidelines, but they added really substantial due process protections for people accused. They made sure that the restriction, the way in which it affected free speech, was greatly limited. This might sound kind of like inside the beltway stuff, but it was important that the Trump administration rules were done through the administrative procedures, notice and comment rulemaking process. The last time the administration, administration had done that was 1975. So this is not simply dear colleague letters and guidelines. This was a real rulemaking. The result of that was that the Biden administration, in order to change them, has to do the same thing. So they've proposed regulations um, last summer, and we haven't seen the final regulations. Those will then be challenged in court, and I think if they keep them the way that they were, they're going to lose some court challenges. So the Trump administration not only changed the the rules themselves, but they change the process by which rules will be made in the future.
0: Do you think that to come back to our initial topic of the kind of broader state of American higher education, do you think that this Title IX issue is a major drag on the sector in terms of effort, distraction, uh Changing policies, leading the university administrations to have to exert a lot of resources to shift their stance every eight years or four years or whatever it is. Do you think this is a major problem, or is this just kind of background noise in the general, in the general, as you put it, sort of perpetual crisis of American universities?
1: You know, I I don't think uh, in the broad scheme of things. Uh, The fact that they have to devote lots of resources to writing and rewriting uh, Title IX regs, you know, that's, um, you know, a few more lawyers, more or less. Just hire, hire more adjuncts and fewer real teachers, and you can pay for all of those lawyers. I think what it does is to add to the impression that many parents and students have that academia is a wonderland of political correctness. And that all of these crazy things happen there that um, endanger, especially the, the men who go there. I don't want to put too much emphasis on the real danger, but there is a problem that not uh, uh, we have too few boys that are aspiring to higher education. We have too few boys and men who are succeeding in education. Most of that is cultural. It has little to do with the policies of universities. But I think this is one symbolic way in which schools indicate that we're not particularly sympathetic to
0: the possible way in which men and boys can be mistreated. One final question on this. To what extent does university regulation of sexual harassment match up with the regulation of sexual harassment in the corporate world that students are likely to Encounter Is this something, are universities doing a service to students by sort of preparing them for a professional life in which they'll be expected to follow similar rules and norms, or is it completely different? The
1: rules that apply, they're imposed by the federal government in the corporate world for employment i think are much more reasonable and much more respectful of due process and much more limited in their the broad definition of sexual harassment than under title nine but of course much of what's happened in the corporate world is not legal matters um it is cultural matters who can be shamed who can be drummed out and To the extent that if there's kind of that shaming and and canceling in academia, I suppose it is getting people used to what's likely to happen in the corporate world, but it's not healthy in either place.
0: And perhaps even it's the new culture in the corporate world might indeed actually be a function of what's going on in the universities, which if – as you claim. It's true that the this has been the aim all along. It's to change broader cultures and society at large around these issues and using the universities as kind of a lever to do that.
1: Exactly. And the people who go into important positions in legal departments of large corporations or the human resources departments, um, they tend to be the people who absorb these, this understanding of the problem. I, I just want to say that, you know, There are many good things that have happened as a result of these changes. I have long been really opposed to um, sexual relations between faculty and students. Um, I think that's a misuse of authority. I realize that the misuse of authority by corporate bosses has been extreme, Um, not surprisingly, especially in Hollywood. So I don't want to minimize these problems at all. But it's important to have make sure that you're not simply weaponizing claims of sexual harassment and not providing the types of due process requirements that make sure that people are not falsely accused.
0: You are working on or finishing up a new book on education and civil, civil rights called The Crucible of School De- Desegregation. And in fact, it's coming out within a few months, this new book. And I was wondering if you might like to tell our listeners a little bit about it.
1: Sure, thanks for the invitation. Yeah, the book um is uh The Crucible of Desegregation is coming out at University of uh, Chicago Press in May. And this really uh, this is the second of uh my books about what I call the civil rights state. That is that this immense set of regulations, laws um, court decisions that basically define discrimination on the basis of race, sex, disability, and so many other things. And I, I just the, the the main theme of the book, The Crucible of Segregation Desegregation, is that the Supreme Court has never defined what desegregation means. It's issued scores of decisions, and it has never explained what schools must do. I mean, it's really, it's it's amazing and it's disheartening, but I think it's undeniable. The Supreme Court has dodged the issue for decades. The result of that was that the job of defining school desegregation was left to lower court judges um, who had tried a variety of different things, um, but they didn't do so saying, these are experiments, let's see what works and what doesn't, basically said, this is what the Constitution requires. So desegregation ended up being ad hoc applications of vague standards in in school systems throughout the country. And enormous controversy with everyone claiming my understanding of Brown is the only correct one without any comparisons of what the the alternatives were. And very simply say that one alternative was simply to say that you can't discriminate on the basis of race. You have to have colorblind admissions. Race is the one thing you can't uh, use to assign kids to school. Now, that would leave some schools predominantly black and brown because of residential segregation. But the answer to that is, that might not be desirable, but it's not unconstitutional. It's not our job to to spread students around equally. The other alternative was to say that what we need to uh, end is racial isolation. That is predominantly black and brown schools. Therefore, we have to move white students, black students, brown students, Asian students around so that they are proportionally represented in each school. Uh, The idea there was that that would increase the educational uh, opportunities and achievement of minority students, but there's not a lot of evidence to show that was true. So I try to trace out how these two different understandings filtered through this complicated judicial system and what we know about the evidence of what worked and what didn't.
0: Well, that sounds super interesting, Shep. I uh, look forward to learning more, and I'd encourage all our listeners to check it out. The Crucible of School Desegregation coming out with um, University of Chicago Press. Shep, I do think we are running low on time, so I'm going to ask you the question that we ask all of our guests on this show, which is to please give our listeners a suggestion for a book or a movie or a novel or a podcast to read or listen to or whatever on the topic of uh, civil discourse and debate?
1: I don't have a particular book. I've I've been reading too many of them. But what I would say is one of the things I encourage your listeners to do is to um, check out some of the new organizations that have have, uh, podcasts, that have articles. Um, And I think there's been just a tremendous renaissance of people who are interested in having more diversity of thought in the university. Of, um, of creating more civic education. Heterodox Academy, obviously, the programs like uh, Skettle at ASU, the FIRE, the uh, organization, that the number of publications and podcasts on this topic I think has grown dramatically in the last year. And it really encourages me that the thoughtful middle in academia, which I always hoped still exists, is reasserting itself to some extent
0: right well thank you very much for those suggestions and that uh, hopeful final word and thank you very much for coming on keeping it civil Shep Melnick it's been a real pleasure well it's been a pleasure to be on with you